We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, which I believe is everybody, uh, welcome home. Uh, tonight's book is Willard Mullins' Golden Age of Baseball, Drawings 1934-1972, to uh, published by Fantagraphics Books. Fantagraphics Books, it is really beautiful. And please join me as we welcome to the clubhouse the editor of this book, Hal Bach. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much for coming out tonight to hear a little bit about my new book and about America's greatest sports cartoonist, Willard Mullen. This book took 10 years to put together. It was originally planned as a tribute to Mullen's 100th birthday in 2002. So instead, it celebrates its 110th birthday <laughs> in 2012. Uh, it, came out, it actually came out in 2013, so I guess it's 111 years. I believe Willard Mullen was born with a twinkle in his eye. He had a taste for the whimsical that was the way he lived his life. He was always smiling, always seeing humor and life's up and ups and downs. He enjoyed life and he used a pen and ink, brushes and easels, to capture a special time in sports, all sports, but especially baseball. Before steroids and performance-enhancing drugs, before designated hitters and wild-card teams, before artificial surfaces and silly mascots running around the ballpark, Baseball enjoyed a simpler time. It was a golden age, and that was Willard Mullen's era. Mullen's technique was simple. He had a stool and an easel in the corner of the sports department at the New York World Telegram and Sun. He'd hook his feet around the legs of the stool, and he'd go to work, first with a sketch, and he'd fill it in. He always worked with a dictionary at his side, because although he was a great cartoonist, he wasn't such a great speller. The first cartoon he drew from the Los Angeles Herald had 13 words misspelled, almost cost him his job. Someone once asked him how long it took to create a cartoon, and Mullen's answer was, does that include the time that it takes out staring a blank piece of white paper, trying to hatch an idea? But he had ideas, I'll tell you. When he finished, he would sign the cartoon with a combination of 26 pen strokes, all but two of them vertical, to form his name. The ideas came from everywhere. He worked through a remarkable time in baseball, from Babe Ruth and Rogers Hornsby to Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams, from the Gas House Gang, which, by the way, he came up with the name Gas House Gang, and I'll talk a little bit more about some of the things he came up with, uh, to the Whiz Kids. He had a front row seat to all of it. Much of Willard Mullen's work was done in his studio at home, a few miles from where I live, in, I live in East Williston, he worked in Manhasset. Uh, in Plandome, I'm sorry, not Manhasset. Uh, he'd do his cartoon and then he'd rush to the Long Island Railroad Station and give it to the conductor along with a $3 tip to deliver it to Penn Station where a copy boy would meet the train, pick up the cartoon, and bring it to the newspaper. I know that because I drew that duty quite a few times. I did not, however, get $3 for doing it. Yeah, that's a laugh. That's a laugh. People often ask about Mullen's most famous creation, the Brooklyn Dodger bum. 
Here's a picture of the bum on the back of it. That's the bum. Classic. Okay? Why did he think the bum? Why, why I'm going to tell you. The Dodgers went through some tough times in the 1930s. It was an era of daffiness that once found three of their runners occupying third base at the same time. Mullen portrayed them first as a clown. And let me show you that. There's a uh, cartoon in here of that era. So this was the original Brooklyn Dodger. I'm sorry, this is wrong. This is the original bum. Um, well, it's in here, I know. There's a picture in here of a clown. And that was the Dodger, the, that was the Dodger of Bill Mullins early years. <clears throat> He's always looking to improve his message. And one day he went out to Ebbets Field for a doubleheader, looking for some inspiration. He watched the first game, and he watched half of the second game, and he left the ballpark and hailed a cab. And the driver gets in the cab, and the driver said to him, how did our bums do today? And Mullen wrote in his autobiography, I couldn't have scored a more direct, he couldn't have scored a more direct hit if he had hit me over the head with a bat. Notice he didn't say the bums, he said our bums. And that was the key to whatever personality I could create. He had to have a certain warmth, coupled with a happy ignorance and downright arrogance that would make him lovable to a lot of people, Brooklyn people primarily. Now I'm going to show you his first bum, which is what I turned to before. Page 31 in this book. That's the first bum. And he looks like somebody you'd find under a bridge. That's the bum. That's the original bum. Uh, it took some time to develop this guy. But Mullen worked it out. He uh, went back to his office and started sketching, and that original bum was the result. But uh, he knew that he needed to improve on it, and he realized that there was a special relationship that the Dodgers had with the people of Brooklyn that most teams don't have with their, their hometown fans, because Brooklyn, don't forget, is just one borough of New York City. And it's a very compact kind of an area. The Dodgers played in Ebbets Field, which was a little bandbox of a ballpark. So they, would, they all lived in the community. If you went to a grocery store, you were liable to see Gil Hodges, or you were liable to see Roy Campanella on the train, on the subway, taking the train to Ebbets Field. So even though the first bump was not exactly eye-catching, Eventually, the signature character evolved into a proud but down-on-his-luck character, poor but independent, unshaven, with the stump of a cigar stuck in his mouth. He wore a floppy hat, a tatted coat, and baggy pants. The only parts that matched were the plaid patches on each of, each, each of his elbows and knees. The bump always needed a cobbler, considering that one sole of his shoe was held together with a neatly tied bandana, 
and the other had a hole in it. When Walter O'Malley, who many people still curse in Brooklyn, spirited the Dodgers off to Los Angeles, Mullins' bum adopted. The hat was replaced by a beret, the cigar by a cigarette holder, the sunglasses, spiffy printed shirt, sport jacket and shorts. The bum was all set for Hollywood. The original bum observed the new version in a classic Mullen cartoon, which I believe is in here, and innocently inquired, you think you used to live in Brooklyn? Mullen's other characters were classic. Instead of a simple cardinal bird, beautiful, what a beautiful bird the cardinal is, uh, and a simple drawing would have been, right? For St. Louis, Mullen portrayed that team as a riverboat gambler playing the Mississippi with a deck of cards at the ready. The Philadelphia Philly Wiz kids were represented by a juvenile delinquent with a slingshot positioned in his back pocket. Later, when the Mets were born and Mullen was drafted to give them an image, he used his grandson, Teddy, wearing a diaper and baseball cleats as a model for the new kid on baseball block. And when the Mets stunned the world uh, seven years later in their in winning the World Series in 1969, Mullen used a David and Goliath image. That's in here as well. And it's here. That's right. It's on his chest. There <laughs> <Here> you go. <laughs> Mullen was not only a great cartoonist, he was pretty good with words. He gave the Cardinals of the early 30s the nickname Gas House Gang when they arrived in New York looking rather dirty and disheveled, looking like a team from the other side of the tracks. He labeled Lou Gehrig the Iron Horse, a tribute to 2,130 consecutive game streak. He sometimes wrote poems to accompany his drawings. It was most, he was most inspired, it seems, by the New York Giants winning the 1951 National League pennant. Thank you, God. <laughs> Against the hated Dodgers and the bum and the bum. Mullen labeled that event a little miracle of Coogan's bluff and called Bobby Thompson's pennant-winning home run the shot heard around the world. He came up with all of this stuff, and this is above and beyond the cartoons that he was drawing. Willard Mullen was born in Ohio but grew up in California. He came to cartooning early in life, inspired by the work of his mother's cousin, who was trained as an architect, but turned to drawing images based on the work of Mark Twain. Mullen had discovered a career track. When I was 10 years old, I knew it would be my career forever. And I was telling Jay earlier, when I was 10 years old, and I found out that people could make a living writing about baseball, they knew what my career was going to be. Write about baseball, and now they pay you for that? Whoa, what a life. He drifted back and forth between California and Texas for a while, and he was invited to try out for the World Telegram, and, the New York World Telegram, but wasn't yet the Telegram and Sun. His first assignment was Babe Ruth's farewell to the Yankees, a press conference that was held in the brewery. Mullen's boss was not impressed, saying the only part of the image that resembled the babe were his king-sized feet. Mullen's later renderings of, the, of Ruth were much better, and you'll see them in here as well. His cartoons have been on display in several museums, including the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the Yogi Berra Museum, where some of you were when I did a signing there a couple of months ago, in Little Falls, New Jersey. Mullen did not like being called an artist. He would say defiantly, I am a cartoonist. As his work evolved and found larger audiences, he attracted an entourage of younger cartoonists. Among those he gave advice to were Carl Hubethal, Jim Dobbins, Lou Darvis, Len Holreiser, and Bob Stake. 
who wrote an introduction for this book and also maintains a Willard Mullen website to introduce his work to newer generations. And we hope that this book does the same thing. And uh, I would be glad to answer any questions you might have about Mullen. Yes, sir. If you do cartoons, no, he did, he was a sports cartoonist. Yes, sir. Let, her, let him finish. Let him finish. Well, my understanding is that he was a. My memory is that he was a sports cartoonist, and he was uh, six days a week in the New York World Telegram and Sun. I I would that was the first thing I would look at every every day when my dad brought home the newspaper. No, 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 no. He did a lot of. Boxing. He did a lot of football. He did a lot of track and field. Uh, he did a lot of basketball. He did some hockey, but he was he was a New York sports guy. He was a man about town. He was a, a confidant of uh, Gene Leone. Uh, in fact, his daughter, who has a uh, an introduction in the book, remembers Leone's restaurant and how she would go there with her husband, and he he opened a restaurant for them one night in the middle of the night because they got stranded. The last train to, to Long Island had gone and they had no place to go, so they called Gene Leone and he opened the restaurant for them. So he was, uh, Mullen was a man about town. He was a very popular Broadway-type figure. Uh, he was at every sports event, a lot of sports events. Um, and he was just, uh, you know, he was an equal opportunity cartoonist. But baseball was his main gig. Yes, sir, Lee. Did, did he have influences? You know, Jacob Burke, who was a political uh, Chicago cartoonist, had that kind of the, a style that was that was similar to Mullins to me. Did he did he mentor? Or was he mentored by anybody or go to art school? Or no, no, I don't believe so. I think he was self-taught. Um, I have an interesting story to tell you. Another. I hope the first two stories were interesting. I have another interesting story. I know he wants to political cartoon, I remember it. But on the front page of the World Telegram, when Mayor O'Dwyer, in New York City, 49, and President Truman saved him by appointing him ambassador to Mexico so he could resign as mayor of New York, Mullet had a cartoon on the front page showing him with grubby, greedy hands telling the Mexican people, I represent the United States of America. Mullen, huh? Yes, sir. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Yes, sir. Uh, the thing I remember about Mullen quite too is that it, it was uh, really establishing a very strong presence. That's what led off the sports pages of the World Telegram and Sun. Oh, absolutely. And it was it was such a strong influence that uh, I think it was uh, that that helped. Brooks Atkinson at the New York Times insists that Hirschfeld drawings were always going to be on the front page of the arts and leisure section. That's and very interesting. And this was sort of self-inflating uh, to Atkinson because that made sure that everybody was really going to read the drama section. That's very and interesting. Well, that Hirschfeld drawing which always commanded that huge space, just as Mullins did, uh, was going to be there every every day. For any of you who have been in publishing or published books, you know that the uh, there's a great debate that always goes on about the cover. So now I'm a writer. I don't draw pictures, and I don't write, but I know I have ideas. So when we did this book, I said, 
There's no question in my mind that the cover of this book has to feature his most famous character, the Brooklyn Dodger Bum. There's no question. And my co-author, the uh, attorney for the uh, Mullen Estate, Michael Powers, agreed. He stopped. Absolutely. So we told Fantagraphics that's what we wanted on the cover. And they said, never you mind. We'll take care of the cover. <laughs> and so they had a little focus group in their company. Did a focus group. And they showed a, color, a cover. Hello, Don. I didn't see you come in. I wouldn't miss you out. Uh-huh. We were selling our 50th anniversary knowing each other next year. Yes, I know. So they were, they were showing a, a mock-up of a cover with the Brooklyn Dodger bum. And the staff, many of whom were younger than the group that's in this room tonight, no said, why are you putting a homeless person on the cover <laughs> of this book? So that went out the window. The little card that I've passed around, I don't know if you all have them, um, this was a proposed cover. This shows uh, Joe DiMaggio and Bill Terry schmoozing about baseball. I don't. I didn't like it. I wasn't given a vote. When the book came out, this was the cover. This is a cartoon. Um, it's in the book. Mullen did a cartoon about Tommy Byrne. Tommy Byrne was a scatter-arm left-hander who pitched for the Yankees. And you could be a scatter on left-hander when you had that lineup behind you. <laughs> and uh, one game he threw, I don't know, seven or eight wild pitches. So Mullen depicted that with the catcher and the umpire dodging and trying to, <laughs> trying to catch up. But what's, what's interesting about this, thank you, Jay. What's interesting about this cover is Mullen shows the fluidity of movement. It's not just a static picture. And he does that throughout his work. You'll see that throughout the work. Um, because he was, no matter what he says, he was an artist. He was an artist. He had great talent. And just because he concentrated on sports doesn't diminish that one bit, in my mind. Yes, sir. I think what you just said was, was very, very important. Uh, he was one of the really first cartoonists who was able to invest in these drawings Right. In static drawings, aside from animated, you know, like Disney things. You know, that's tough to do. But his techniques were also dashed off. I mean, I know. And that from a cartoonist, right? Yeah, for those of you who may not know or those listening to the podcast, the, the, the question was from uh, Mort Gerberg, the great cartoonist whose work appears in The New Yorker for many years. And so if you've ever seen a Mort Gerberg cartoon, that was Mort. <laughs> But nobody, nobody succeeded. <laughs> nobody succeeded. I mean, I, as I said before, the paper would come into my house, and as I do today, I would always turn to the back page first, because after all, that's man's accomplishment, that's man's status, that's on the front page. Um, I would always turn to the sports pages first, and I would always look at the cartoon first. And, I mean, he just captured, he captured it. He and that's what you want to do as a writer. You want to be able to capture the moment. He captured the moment. Yeah. And day in and day out, he very rarely missed the mark. Um, well, also as a journalist, he was also on top of the news. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. 
that was an all-star uh, uh, cast on that World Telegram and Sun staff. I was privileged to work with them as a kid just starting out. But they had some great writers. They had the great Dan Daniel. In fact, <laughs> one of Mullen's cartoons, and I'm je- jealous, my old friend Phil Pepe has the original. Uh, Dan Daniel, who was a great baseball writer, great historian, the deacon, I mean the dean, I'm sorry, the dean of baseball writers in New York at that time, uh, had a column called Ask Daniel. And people would send in questions. And one of the one of the questions that was repeated over and over and over again, has a fair ball ever been hit out of Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium with the facade, you know? The answer is no. And Mullen would always answer, no. No fair ball has ever been hit out of Yankee Stadium. And then came along a fellow named Mickey Mantle, who hit a ball off a poor pitcher named Bill Fisher. I mean, it's still going. And it hit the facade on the roof of Yankee Stadium. And Mullen chose to depict that moment as a caricature of Dan Daniels sitting on the roof of Yankee Stadium. And the caption was, nobody's going to make a liar out of me. <laughs> so Phil Pepe, has, Phil Pepe has the original. Now you're all laughing. That was Mullen. That was, Mullen made you laugh. And it's just magical talent that he had. Uh, so I saw him talk about the staff at the World Telegram and Sun. Uh, Dan Daniel, he would cover the Yankees, because after all, the Yankees were the best team in baseball. <coughs> And then they had Bill Rhoda, who covered the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I'll tell you a little story about Bill Rhoda. I was a kid, like 17, 18 years old, going to NYU. And I was majoring in journalism, and I had an opportunity to work at the World Telegram and Sun part-time. Would you like to work at the World Telegram and Sun? You bet your sweet bippy, baby. Show me the way. You know, I'm on my way. So I would get there every night, and I would work at 5 o'clock in the evening doing high school sports. Loved it. And uh, the, the city room was empty because it was a, a, an afternoon newspaper. The last edition would be published at 5 o'clock at night. Everybody went home. And they'd have a skeleton staff in case, God forbid, a plane fell down or, you know, some tragedy. And uh, some of the writers would come in and do their work. And I, my policy was to keep your mouth shut and your eyes and ears open. Maybe you'll learn something. So I did that. And Bill Rhoda, who was the sweetest guy in the world, came in, and he's sitting there, and he's writing about the Dodgers. And he says, he, very friendly guy, he said, what's your name? Bill Rhoda wants to know my name? All right. So I told him, my name is Hal Bach. He said, where do you live? I live in Queens, in Glen Oaks. Oh, Glen Oaks. I drive past there. I live in Roslyn. I drive right past. Would you like a lift home? in my sports car. He had a roadster, a little two-seater. So my choice is this. <laughs> Here's my choice. I'm 17 years old. Do I ride home with the guy who's covering the Brooklyn Dodgers, or do I take the subway with some of Mullen's characters? And I chose to ride with Bill Rhoda, and that was the most memorable, it was the most memorable night of my life, one of the most memorable nights of my life. This is right up there, by the way. But... Uh, here I am with one of my heroes driving home he drops me off at my door what could be better than that (laughs) then they had Lou Miller Lou Miller covered uh, track and field mostly they had James Burchard 
who covered uh, golf. They had, uh, oh, what a staff. Lester Bromberg was the boxing writer. Phil Pepe, who you guys may remember as the Yankees writer for the New York Daily News, started out at the World Telegram and Sun doing doing schoolboy sports, and I worked for Phil. Um, Xander Hollander, who uh, did... uh, he did schoolboy sports before Phil did, and then he moved on to uh, outdoor sports. So it was a great staff, and I learned a lot just watching these guys operate and how they operated. And it was an education. It was a terrific education. Just, just before, before, did you know the other uh, members of the poll the other newspapers? There were about nine or ten other newspapers. I knew some of them uh, because I covered some sports events. But, I mean, I didn't know them as well as I knew the, the World Telegram and Sun staff because I was there every night. But uh, a guy named Ralph Blumenfeld covered schoolboy sports for the Post. A fellow named Maury Rokich covered for the uh, Journal American. A guy named Al Spitzer covered for a paper called the Long Island Press. So there were, you know, I, I met some of these guys. You know. When did the Telegram close? Uh, 1966, uh, they, we had a, an ugly newspaper strike here in New York. We had a, a series of newspaper strikes here in New York that swallowed up a lot of newspapers. And in 1966, the World Telegram went out of business. It became the World Tri- Journal Tribune. So it was the Herald Tribune, the, the World Telegram Sun, and the Journal American became one paper. But it was doomed to failure. Mullen worked there for maybe a year or two, and, and then it was gone. And then he just retired. Well, he didn't retire. He continued to he continued to do syndicated stuff for Scripps Howard, and uh, he did a lot of freelance stuff. He did Saturday Evening Post. He did the Mets yearbooks from 1962 to 1969 were all Mullen, and they hang uh, in the uh, <laughs> they hang in the uh, tunnel at the City Field where the ball players go to the go to the clubhouse. Their whole series of Mullen cartoons are hanging in that. Uh, in that tunnel. And some of them looked and they kind of, you know, noticed them, but most of them are busy counting your money. So they just <laughs> go about their business. Yes, sir? In a little bit of a different business age, back then, uh, when MLB and uh, franchises were, you know, today are so guarded about their images, Emmett Kelly ah. and, and, yes. and, the, and this character, yeah. is there any business relationship there? Meaning, was there any like copyright or something that died? I know that Kelly. I know that Kelly appeared at Ebbets Field, and I'm sure it was part of the the Dodger clown image that Mullen had created. Now, I was a kid. I was just a little kid at the time, so I don't know the details. But I do remember seeing Ebbets uh, Kelly at at uh, Ebbets Field. So died. Yeah. And then O'Malley brought him back. The last year, sort of to say, "What well, are you feeling so sad?" About Did he? I didn't. I wasn't sure. I was so angry at O'Malley. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, just curious if you knew anything about the story on the back of the card. And, uh, the story. Uh, the story behind the card. That's on the back of the card. The, the well, I don't know. No, I really don't know what that what that illustrates. I don't know. I honest to God don't know. He did ten thousand they say he did ten thousand cartoons and of the ten thousand, two thousand depicted the bunk. Wow. 
It's a lot. That's 20%. I can't testify that that's 100% accurate, but that's what I'm told. That's what I've been told. Um, Did any of the subjects take offense to their caricature? No. Everyone was. No, absolutely not. In that in that age, it was a lot different. Uh, players were thrilled to be in, you know, have their pictures in the paper and have Mullen drawing their, their uh, image. And his images were not, I mean, he did a lot of portrait work, and you'll see that in the book. Uh, there is a striking image of Babe Ruth. His first Babe Ruth was terrible, obviously, and the, the managing editor pulled him on the carpet and said, this is not going to work. So he realized that he had to uh, do some heavy-duty work. Um, and he did a lot of portrait work. But he also did a lot of cartoons, which were whimsical. Um, he portrayed the giant, the Giants, but he was a Giants fan. And he named the Giants uh, image Willie. So somebody said, well, why, did, and this is pre-Willie Mays, by the way, why did you call him Willie? Because, I don't know, it just seemed to fit. And it was a big, bulbous character. Here, you can see the picture right here. It's actually, uh, this is the cartoon when they left. Uh, and this cartoon is made up of all of the names of giant players through the years. One of the things he used to do, uh, and he would get Christmas drop. cards. You'd have to send out 10,000 Christmas cards. I mean, he didn't have the time or the energy to do that. So what he would do is he would draw a Christmas card composed of all of the names of current uh, sports characters, and they would, they, and that's in there as well. They would compose the Christmas card, and it would be a scene, maybe the the, uh, the three wise men, or it might have been Santa Claus one year, just different Christmas images, and he used the names to form the, the image. It's a amazing guy. On the right page, you got it. It's a little hard to see, but those are all names. Mm. Yeah, there's the Christmas candle. Did he invent that? I don't know anybody else who ever did it. Yes, sir. Did, did he have a friendly rivalry with Bill Gallo or the news? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Bill Gallo worshipped him. Bill Gallo thought he was the greatest cartoonist, cartoonist who ever lived. And if you read Gallo's introduction in the in the book, he says that. Mm. Uh, he uh, he abided Mullen. There was no rival. Yes, now, can you describe the selection process? And was it painful to include, not include some pictures really liked? Sure. And how did you go about that selection process? I'm proud to say I was not involved. <laughs> I did I did all the writing, but I left the cartoon selection to a man named Michael Powers, who's the attorney for the Mullen Estate and who went around the country gathering these cartoons. Um, he's a terrific guy, a good friend of mine. Uh, and uh, How did he do it? Do you know? I mean, it must have been very hard. Well, he knew where there were cartoons. Cooperstown has a bunch of Mullen cartoons. Syracuse University has a bunch of Mullen cartoons. The Art Museum in Indianapolis has cartoons. Shirley Mullen, Mullen's daughter, has cartoons. So, I mean, he just went around and gathered the cartoons and he made the choices and I'm very happy with his choices you are? oh yeah they're not some you really wish were in there oh no no I mean he he covered the entire Mullen's entire career is in there yeah. I mean the famous images that Mullen created are in there yes sir 
I just wanted to add to the artistic aspects of Mullen was his hand lettering. You yes. spoke of the great prose that he wrote, uh, and there's always a lot of poetry that he accomplished. But and all of these things were hand lettered with the most beautiful original uh, font that he had invented, and it was so distinctive. You could just it was very distinctive. Yeah. You and could not you could not confuse that for anything else. He was he was a remarkable man. I mean, he he probably could have been a great sports writer if he had chosen to do that. Um, to come up with all of these, the miracle of Coogan's Bluff, the shot heard around the world, the gas house gang, the Iron Horse. These are part of the lexicon of baseball, and they all belong to Willard Mullen. There's a in here as well when uh, Gehrig uh, fell ill. And they had the famous day up at Yankee Stadium for him. Mullen wrote an ode, and it's in there. Uh, there it is. Yeah. It's real. It, it actually touches on a lot of what you were talking about: is the lettering, but and also just the writing is. It's 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 amazing. It's amazing. He was a remarkable character, I'll tell you. Uh, and I, you know, I can't say that I knew him personally, but. I was in the office when he would occasionally come into the office. And as I said earlier, my policy was to keep my mouth shut, my eyes and ears open. And I would watch him work, and it was fascinating. It was fascinating. He was a giant. Just understand a little bit about how things were done back in the days. You mentioned the story about how he would do a cartoon and bring it to the railroad, and they would bring it into the city. Was that the only copy of the cartoon? Yes. So what happened to it in the engraving room, I don't know. But, yeah. but no, he did one cartoon and he gave it to the conductor and the conductor brought it in. So the work he did didn't stay with him? No. And no. In, in fact, there was a... <laughs> call me stupid. There was a locker right by his desk where hundreds of his cartoons were in there. And guys would come by and say, can I have... He said, sure, help yourself. And people walked off with his cartoon. That's how Phil Pepe got this cartoon. <laughs> now, I, being shy at 17 years old, didn't ask for any cartoons. I should have. <laughs> well, in the old and original days, it was even worse because the publishers would throw them out. They'd yes. trash them all. That's right. And they'd just get rid of it. And only later on when people discovered that there was something worthwhile there was a piece of art in that a cartoon was in fact a piece of art. Now, of course, they, they, they trade them and they, they cost thousands. Uh, I know it was hard to find uh, uh, Mullen stuff. When I was doing a baseball book, I, I couldn't find it, but I had to go and get some things up at the uh, uh, Yeah. You know, I'll tell you a story that's not Mullen related, but it, it plays to that, to just what you were saying. Like Jay, I'm an NYU graduate. And uh, I have served on the uh, Hall of Fame Selection Committee for the Sports Hall of Fame at NYU. And we would meet down at the university at the gym, Cole's gym. And the late Dan Quilty was the athletic director. And I would go into his office, and he had in his office on the walls, I don't know, maybe 50 Disney images. Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, the whole nine yards, right? And I thought, oh, that's great. Where did you get these? He said, you'll never believe this. 
They were up at the University Heights campus in a garbage can. I said, a garbage can? He said, yeah, they were throwing them out. And I said, can I have them? And he said, yeah, sure. So he rescued probably 50 Disney images. I don't think original Disney images, but they were images. Were these cells or were these original No, cells, I think. They told me when Disneyland opened in California... They were going around with shopping carts just selling cells of cartoons for like a dollar or whatever. You know, it's just, there's no appreciation, you know, for history. Uh, it's uh, it's mind-boggling sometimes. I can't explain it. You explain it. In the process of animation, you have layers of things. You have a background, and then on top of that, you have Do you think Willard Muller would have done well with the computer graphics? No. He was a... Well, he, he drew, he drew like it. Now they just push buttons. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about, uh, you were talking just a moment ago about history and not having an appreciation of history. Uh, Dr. Donald Byrd is a professor of journalism at Long Island University. Well, he's taught sports uh, reporting. Where I taught sports reporting for a while. And I was very excited when I got to LIU to teach because I had just retired from the AP after 40 years. And I have scars to prove it. <laughs> 40 years of writing sports, you can accumulate some, star- some scars. But anyway, I get to LIU and I think, this is going to be great. And I, I start talking to my class, my first class, and I'm telling them some anecdotes. I thought it would be a good way to introduce this craft. And I'm talking about Billy Martin and some of his antics that I covered. And I get, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes into this soliloquy about Billy Martin, and the young lady raises her hand. (laughs) He knows what's coming. (laughs) Yes, yes, is a question? And she says, who's Billy Martin? So it was at that moment that I realized, holy mackerel, I'm from another generation. I have to change my approach, you know, and I do. But uh, there is, in the younger generation, unfortunately, does not appreciate the history of of our game, my game. Not, not all. There's a couple of young guys up there. Hooray for you guys. <laughs> no, you're right. Not all. You're right. Absolutely right. But one of, one of the reasons I enjoyed so much putting this together is I love the history of the game and I'm working now on uh, I've become <coughs> enamored with the dead ball uh, era and uh, I'm working now on some stuff about the Chicago Cubs of the early the early part of the 19th, of the early part of the 20th century who went to the World Series four times in five years the Chicago Cubs were in four <laughs> World Series <laughs> when did that happen well it happened you know, no, it's before uh, Hack Wilson. We're talking about we're talking about Tinker the Evis the Chance. But they didn't get along, right? I heard they what? They even though they were paired together in baseball lore, 
They weren't very fond of each other. No, you could say that. <laughs> they want to tear each other's throats out. Yeah. But uh, it's a very interesting era. Uh, and I think he would have had a great time illustrating. I did a, a talk at, uh, at my local library uh, some time ago. And somebody asked me, how would Mullen have depicted Alex Rodriguez? Uh, that's a good question. That's a good question, isn't it? He would have had some fun with Alex Rodriguez, wouldn't he? I think so. Well, actually, so. there's a, we'll get to you, Chris, the old soul back there. Uh, but what, what I found very interesting going through this book is, of course, it hit me, how would he depict an Alex Rodriguez or how would he depict the, the, the greed of a current player, let's sure. say. Sure. He depicted all that. He, he, I, he has this beautiful cartoon based on the Great Depression and the greed of athletes. I demanded that. that that cartoon, the one on the park bench. Yeah, it's beautiful. I demand. I said, I don't care what else you put in this book. To my co-editor, I said, but that cartoon has to be in the book. You're not going to cartoon of a man not on be a, able to see it really well, but in the heart of the depression. And he's on the bench, and he's there's a bunch of newspapers, and the headlines are. DiMaggio to demand 40000 is one of them. Uh, Dizzy returns $10,000 contract is the headline on another one. And, and this poor guy is sitting there trying to figure out how he's going to get his next meal, you know. Now, I didn't, thank you, God, again. I didn't live through the Depression, but my parents did. And so I know what it, how tough it had to be for Americans. And uh, I think that cartoon really captures and shows... The depth and the and the the breadth of Mullen's talent and how much he he recognized what was going on around him. He wasn't just locked in to the Brooklyn bum and, and the What year was that cartoon in the Depression? Um, I think thirty seven, but I'm not sure. Because you know later the Maggio was green. Yes. But he held out the beginning of the season yes, and I showed know. up. So I think it was if I'm not mistaken, thirty eight maybe nine Maybe yeah. There's no date there. But, but he went through the decades uh, making points about athletes' uh, greed, basically. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He uh, was not am not amused by some of that stuff. Um, so all those people who say baseball's changed now are hypocrites because <laughs> even back then, the athletes were asking for way too much money. It's a different game. We were watching earlier oh, yeah. tonight. The Seattle Mariners <laughs> are offering 200 and some million dollars for 10 years. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Robinson Cano yeah. doesn't always run out games, yeah. run out balls. So I don't know. Yes, sir. It's an obvious question, but I hope you did make jokes about the too. That's in there as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, throughout, throughout. Sometimes in the same cartoon. <laughs> yeah. He uh, listen. He was a keen observer of what was going on, uh, and he uh, depicted it in his cartoons. Was he purely a pen and ink man, or did he yes. do? He didn't. Did he, did he do illustrations for fun? Did he keep his own like anything outside of sports, outside of work? Was it a hobby as well? I don't know that for a fact. I suspect it would have been because he was a fun-loving guy, and the cartoon would take him maybe two hours to create. Well, there's still 22 hours for him yeah. to play around, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I mean, he you know he enjoyed life. He enjoyed life. Did, uh, did, did he have any peeves? Like, were there any athletes he wasn't a fan of? Well, he wasn't a fan of. He had a great feud with Ted Williams. Mm. And that story is in the book as well. Williams got offended by some World Telegram writers. And Mullen defended the writers. And 
He got into a big feud with Williams. Because he was a Dodger coming out. So much of a Dodger. How did he handle the Jackie Robinson integration of baseball? You know, I tried to I tried to research that and I didn't I wasn't very successful. But my impression is that Robinson's arrival was not celebrated by the New York press. They accepted him, but they weren't uh, amused by the whole idea of, of a black man playing major league baseball. Now, I never found any cartoons in which uh, Mullen depicted Robinson in a negative way. But I get the impression just from talking to people that uh, the, the uh, reaction of the writers at that time was not, not I wouldn't say negative, maybe ambivalent. But well, it was a nuisance. They didn't want to deal with that. I'm sorry? Wouldn't you say it was a problem they'd rather not deal with? I think that might be. I think that might be. I know I did a big piece uh, on the 50th anniversary of Robinson's arrival in the majors, and I did a lot of research. And I looked at the first story, first game that he played. He played here in Brooklyn against uh, the Braves. Johnny Sane was the opposing pitcher, the late Johnny Sane. And I called up Johnny Sane, who at that time in his life was sitting by the telephone waiting for me to call, or anybody to call. <laughs> And he, he was very impressed that I had found out that he was the pitcher who threw the first pitch to Jackie Robinson. And he said, you know, I wanted to get him out. I didn't care. I wasn't concerned with him being a black man. I just wanted to get him out. And the stories that I saw that day, and I think Robinson went one for four in his first game, um, the stories that I saw did not emphasize that, holy mackerel, Brooklyn has a Negro player in its lineup. I was buried in the sixth or seventh graph, and I'm not even sure that it made the point that he was the first black player. Tom Williams, you probably knew a little bit too, Tom Williams. Very little. He, <laughs> uh, PM, which was that liberal newspaper sure. that died in sure. 48, his cover story was about how they didn't sell out over the they only had 26,000. And the fans were very subdued, but they, but he theorized because the Rocher had been suspended, and so this was the first game after the Super right, Bowl, the right. shot came, and they, they didn't know how to react, you know. So, uh, but you know, the because they had this fellow named Bert Schotten who was sitting in civilian clothes. Right. Well, not not yet. I mean, he came right that, and, a couple of days later. Yeah. But you know, to give you an idea of how how Ricky was afraid of what the press was doing, you know, he hired Frank Grant of the Journal of America to get reaction to when he signed him for Montreal, and he sent them all kinds of clippings, you know. So he was, and, and you know, Ricky was, was a, he knew that Southern uh, guys are not going to want to sign with the Dodgers, and some more than guys. So he was very, very concerned about what the reaction would be. So you, you hit it right. I mean, they weren't negative, but they were, they were nervous. But the, the writers I met starting in 48, when Robinson was a success, you know, then, then they really accepted him. And, and uh, you know, they went and there was segregation in the South and Sam Lacey couldn't cover the game and they would join him, you know, on top of the I would point out to those of you who don't know him, the great Lee Lowenfish did a uh, an epic biography of Branch Rickey, so 
When he tells you about Branch Rickey, you got to listen. He knows what he's talking about. Chris, kind of uh, predecessor to this gentleman's question about Jackie, do you think uh, Mr. Mullen had any intrigue, as you mentioned, he's a keen observer, of going to Newark Eagles game and checking out what was happening? He didn't have to. There were three major league teams playing here in New York City. So why would he have to go to Newark? He didn't have to. To see, uh, to see Jackie Robinson, I understand. No, no, no. To see 18 other men that weren't allowed to play in Evans Field did yet. No. Did, did it hold enough intrigue to him to say... The short answer to your question is no. Because he had the Dodgers, who would, on a daily basis, provide him with fodder. Right. He had the Yankees, <laughs> with Casey Stengel. Right. And he had the Giants. Right and the miracle of Coogan's Bluff. He had more than enough material to work with. I mean, more so like in the New Age when Yao Ming came to the NBA. He was so intriguing because he was different. Yes. There was nothing, as an observant, as an artist, you see artists gravitate, or sometimes it seems like that, very interestingly you're describing that he might have been shunned by his, his, his peers, at the writers, if he had got to express interest in finding Josh Gibson. I think actually. there was a general a general attitude of so what? You know? Even though even though we recognize in, in generations afterwards what a monumental moment that was not only in baseball but in the history of this country. And but and from what I could tell in my research, it was casual. It was yeah, and in fact, the Dodgers, when they announced it, they announced it in as, as casual a manner as you could possibly announce it. They gave out a press release of one or two paragraphs. The uh, Brooklyn Dodgers today purchased a contract of Jack Roosevelt Robinson from the Montreal Royals. He will report immediately. Case closed. That was it. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, that was a little bit too I think way of introducing Robinson to keep it to try to low keep key. it at a, yeah. at a low key level. But also I'm curious as to if, if uh, Mullen was a giant fan. Yes he was. How did he I mean, you know, well Monty Irvin, Hank Thompson, but particularly Willie Mays, because he came with a lot of fanfare he hit for something up in uh, Minneapolis with mm-hmm. the Millers in fifty uh, one. Right. So uh, I mean does he is there some indication there of how he received or treated the revival of Willie Mays? I, from what I can gather, being a Giants fan, if Willie Mays helped them win games, you're more than welcome. You're more than welcome to join my team, you know. Um, and by then, in '51, it was becoming more widespread, you know. Uh, the exception. Did Larry Doby come in that same year? In '47. Yeah, six. I think it was six or eight weeks into the season. Yeah, first American. Yeah, yeah. It was the first American. Who was? Doby was an LIU graduate. Yes, I know. Um, the Browns had the Browns had uh, two players. Willard Brown. Willard Brown and Henry Thompson. Henry Thompson, of course, came to the Giants eventually and became a pretty good player for them. Did, did Mullen, did he get along with the Rocher? Did he draw the Rocher? Yeah. Leo, you bum you. I know that one. <laughs> 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 he drew DeRocher, and uh, DeRocher, DeRocher being DeRocher, I mean, you know, 
But uh, he, I don't think he had a bad relationship with DeRosha. Many people think that DeRosha was responsible for Willie Mays doing this business. He did, because at the beginning, Willie Mays was a bust. Willie Mays was over for his first 21. Right. That's right. And he said, and I then, don't care what and I then, you hit, and then while, the center fielder. And then while, while this famous sports writer that you're privileged to hear talking to you tonight was taking a bath, <laughs> Willie Mays hit a home run against Warren Spahn. That was his first hit. And I heard it on the radio. <laughs> and I said, ooh, we might have something here. <laughs> Baseball on the radio, like the story about how he did the drawings at home and sent them into the uh-huh. city. Does that mean he didn't go to a lot of games in person and listen on the radio? Or he went to his share of games, yeah. but he was he was given wide berth. Do what you want, you know. You're the cartoonist, and he took advantage of that. He worked at home a lot. He had a studio, and he where he worked at home a lot. But he also went to a lot of games. It's good he went to the Dodger game that day. He loved baseball. Yes, he did. I'm sorry. Yes, sir? How much was he paid by the World's Celebrity? Peanuts. But everybody was paid peanuts in those days. (laughs) I mean, I graduated from NYU with with a degree in journalism in 1960, and my first job, I got $75 a week. You know, and I was pleased to have have a job. (laughs) So, I mean, money was... uh, Money in those days wasn't what money became. Cartoonists made less. <laughs> there you, go. you would know. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story about my first job. I worked for the New York Rangers Hockey Club, and uh, <laughs> they decided that they were going to have something called the Holiday Hockey Tournament. They had never done this before. They had had the Holiday Festival, which was a basketball tournament, and they invited, I think, eight teams into New York play in the holiday festival and it was very successful so somebody came up with the idea well why don't we do a hockey tournament and my boss had no interest in this college hockey tournament he was concerned with the rangers and he said bop it's all yours baby it's fine so i called up the four colleges that were were involved and i got their rosters and i got their coaches and i got all kinds of material to put out the program and uh Lo and behold, it was a hit. We drew like 12,000 fans. Nobody expected that. So I'm really proud of myself. Muzz Patrick, some of you may know that name. Muzz Patrick, great player for the Rangers, a defenseman. And at that time, he was the general manager of the hockey club. And Muzz Patrick said, who did this? So my boy said, him, over there. Get him in my office. So I went into Muzz's office, and uh, he said, what's your name? Because he had no idea who I was. Mr. Patrick, I'm Hal Bach. And he had, I had been hired while the Rangers were in training camp, so he never knew anything about me. But I was on the payroll. And he said, how much do you make a week? I said, I make $75 a week. He said, I'm giving you a 25-hour week raise retroactive. Ready to retire. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Easy Street. I'm making a hundred bucks a week. Whoa, what a life! So that, that was my experience with college hockey at Madison Square Garden. I bring, they're bringing it back. They're going to have a, a college game or two. That's what I've heard. Floyd. I'm sorry. I said that's what I've heard. Floyd. Yeah, that's right. These guys, uh, they owe everything to Kurt Flood. They should be getting a percentage. They have no idea. You know, i got to tell you, i got to tell you, we talked a little bit about Jackie Robinson, right? 
Now, when I was writing baseball for the Associated Press, I would go to spring training every year. And we were coming up on the 50th anniversary of uh, Robinson getting into Major League Baseball. So I went up to uh, the not-so-great Vince Coleman. Everybody remember Vince Coleman? Great base stealer. Great base stealer, bad person, bad human being. He told me to take no-dos when I was 12 because I said playoff games start too late. He said, take some no-dos, kid. (laughs) <laughs> and I have it on tape. There you go. <laughs> so I said, well, what do you think about Jackie Robinson? He said, who? I said, Jackie Robinson, the first black player, the guy who made it possible for you to be here making God knows how much money. He had no clue and couldn't care less. And if you and you had a better chance of, of black players knowing who Jackie Robinson was, but Kurt Floyd, they never, really never heard of Kurt Floyd. And the free agency that, that he fought to uh, to achieve, and and that made them rich. And he himself got very little compared. Absolutely, he had nothing to trouble. Show you. Interestingly enough, a lot of the, the young players, especially young black.